I'm Aaron Rothstein of the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Bioethics and American Democracy Program. Welcome to Searching for Medicine Soul. Today's guest is Dr. Jim O'Connell. He serves as the president of Boston Healthcare for the Homeless Program and is an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Dr. O'Connell received his medical degree from Harvard University in 1982 and completed residency in internal medicine at Mass General. In 1985, he began full-time clinical work with homeless individuals as the founding physician of the program. He served as the National Program Director of the Homeless Families Program of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. He is the editor of the Healthcare of Homeless Persons, a manual of communicable diseases and common problems in shelters and on the streets. His first book, Stories from the Shadows, Reflections of a Street Doctor, was published in 2015. Dr. O'Connell, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Honored to be here. <laughs> Terrific. You know, your, uh, your path to medicine and to your clinical work uh, with homeless individuals has been fairly singular, I think, as physician careers go. Uh, how did you come to medicine and how specifically did you come to work with the homeless? Interestingly, you, know, you can imagine my parents were tearing their hairs out when I was uh, struggling through about 10 years between college and medical school, which was just after the 60s. So I graduated from college right, at, right in 1970, right the same year that Kent State happened. And it was tumultuous to say the least. So most of us were searching for, for our souls and searching how to fit into a, a world we weren't so very comfortable in. You know, the truth is I did a bunch of things. I went to graduate school. I was a philosophy major and I went to graduate school and um, studied the philosophy of religions for a while. I taught high school for a couple of years out in Hawaii. Then I was fascinated by uh, one of my heroes in, in uh, when I was at Cambridge named Hannah Arendt, who was at the New School in New York City. And so I, I, I um, after I finished teaching, I went and spent, joined the New School to be here her teaching assistant, but she ended up getting sick and dying within the first few months I was there. So I abandoned that and, uh, you know, still didn't know what I wanted to do because each thing seemed to be fun, but not great. And then I ended up, you know, spending a couple of years up in Northern Vermont with some of my old friends and we were really slowly coming back to the mainstream at that point. But the truth is I, I was over and um, visiting some of my English friends. We were in the Isle of Man, which has like one of the Grand Prix TT motorcycle races. And I, happened to be there with my roommate who lived there. And um, somebody fell off his motorcycle just ahead of us. And I remember there's only a volunteer fire department there. So I sat with this man and his, his girlfriend who had flown into the bushes while my friends drove to get the volunteer fire department. So I had this sort of 40 minutes sitting at the side of the road with this man whose leg was pretty much broken in half. And he was from Manchester, who's come from a whole different part of the world that I understood. And we had this amazing conversation, mostly because he was trying to not look at his leg. And I, of course, would get sick if I looked at legs who so were looking at each other. It just, I started to realize this is what I want to do. I want to learn how to fix that leg and talk to people while I'm doing it. So totally upside down, makes no sense. I almost was embarrassed to tell anybody during my medical school interviews that that's why I wanted to become a doctor because I didn't think they'd believe me. But by then, then I had to go back and do all my pre-medical stuff, which I hadn't done. So it was a, it was a complicated journey, but I would not trade it for anything. You know, I didn't, it wasn't what I wanted to do at the time, but they were experiences that as I look back now kind of helped, I think, ground me in what was going on. Wow. Did did you face any skepticism? I mean, at that time, applying to medical school, having taken this time off to do all these fascinating things. 
I wonder, was there sort of a more rigid idea of what the path to physicianhood should be? Did you encounter that? Oh, I did. And I, I was kind of surprised by it, but I shouldn't have been. So, you know, here I am, I'm 30 years old. I want to go to medical school. And back then, this is in the, in the late 70s, you know, most medical students had gone there right after college or maybe a year or two of research, but I had had this kind of checkered career. So I'll never forget the one medical school I really wanted to go to. I went there to talk about how do I apply. And the admissions officer said, he said, look, he said, look you're 30 years old. He said, and unless you're possessed of a font of human energy bordering dangerously on the pathological, he would dissuade me from a career in medicine. So I never even got a chance to interview at that school, never got past that <laughs> process. So yes, there were some interesting things in, but it was some schools were anxious to have some older students. Most schools were still very skeptical of us. Hmm. In uh, in stories from the shadows, you described your initial experience in in this role, soaking the feet of the homeless in in warm water with betadine, and this sort of allusion to Jesus washing the the feet of the twelve apostles at the Last Supper. Uh, you know, it's a deep deep expression of humility. You know, I know I know that you studied theology, but did religion ever play a role in your decision making? Uh, you know, is there some connection between your study of theology and how you got to doing what you're doing. You know, I'm, sh- I'm sure there is Aaron, but I, you know, I, I try to avoid going too, too deeply down that path because it gets me all twisted. But I think I was in search of something that would make life meaningful. And I wanted to be sure I gave back. I grew up in a, you know, one of these Irish Catholic families, you know, where, you know, most of them had been immigrants and stuff. And what we were trying to do was figure out how do you, how do you, take your blessings and give them away. So I think I was always caught in that, you know, in college and in graduate school. But then I think when I got to Pine Street at that time, I was just really concentrating on being a good doctor. I really wanted to be, I finally found my profession. I wanted to be the, as good as I could possibly be. So I don't think I was thinking religious at all or spiritual, but I knew I was on the, you know, I loved being a doctor. I loved training and I loved it just, it felt good. So when I got to Pine Street, it was really the nurses, as you know, who said, man, you've been trained all wrong. You got to listen to us. And, you know, they condemned the speed at which we see patients in the hospital and been trained to do it, said, here's what we do. And I don't think at the time I was thinking, you know, of seeing the biblical significance of that. What I was mostly struck with was, here's this, I was in an 800 bed shelter absolutely crazy, chaotic. But you walk into the nurse's clinic and they had all these men soaking their feet. It was the men's uh, shelter, by the way. And they had all these men soaking their feet. And it was like spiritually quiet and kind of reverent. And I was struck by, out of the chaos, I walk in here and look what's going on. But it was all about the nurses inviting people in and calling call them by their names. When I did, hadn't thought about it, but most homeless people don't hear their names said with dignity and kindness often. And then instead of pushing them for, you know, chief complaints, as I would have done, they would just say, hey, what can we do for you? Let us soak your feet. And most people have been walking around all day. And then what struck me was the flip of the power structure. So, you know, you're sitting at the feet of the person you're you're serving. And I was using, and you're not in their personal space. I was used to being a stethoscope away from someone's face, heart, lungs. And this was really respectfully being at someone's feet. And I think what I was most struck by was the dignity of it all and trying, you know, you just were doing something 
without feeling the pressure, I've got to make a diagnosis and treat this right away. And, you know, over those, I had to do that for two months. The nurses gave me an apprenticeship of two months. And it was striking how it took that time, much of that time to earn the trust of the people we were taking care of. They needed to know that I was there to stay and I was there to listen. I had to share a bit of myself with them. You know, all the things that I think were on the edge of boundaries that we had between doctor and patient. And then I think it was only afterwards that I caught the full breadth of how, you know, this is really dignified, actually really kind of reverent spiritual stuff. And I think that came from the nurses teaching me that. I don't think I went in realizing that. Wow. Yeah. Maybe for our listeners, you can just give us a sense of what residency was like compared to, you know, this was your first job as a, you know, an attending physician and, you know, the difference between the the pace of things. You know, I, I like to think of it as like, you know, when you're, and I was an older student member. So as a medical student, you're really, you know, you're at the bottom of the barrel, you know, you're washing the dishes and cleaning the pots. That's what you're doing. During residency, there's a slow expansion of your ego as you really get better and better at the things you've got to do. And I can remember my last my last rotation at Mass General as a senior was to, to run the ICU, the medical intensive care unit. And you get this totally inflated sense of ego because you can you may not understand everything, but you're learning how to manage everything. And people are coming from all over the state, if not all over the country to be there and it was really sick people and I felt in control and you know and able to manage all of that. So I kept thinking going six blocks down the road to do this one year gig um, as the doctor in a shelter or in the shelters, several shelters, how hard could it be after the ICU, right? So I remember walking in, seeing the chaos and realizing that as opposed to the ICU where I had control over every dial and every line. I had control over nothing. You know, it was just your hope. And uh, the first thing that happened, I would share with you is that, you know, they asked me to see this man who didn't look well. I saw him, thought he was fine. Just that he needed to maybe stop smoking, stop drinking, but he wasn't interested in doing that. You know, a couple of nights later, the staff brought him back saying, you know, doc, we've known him a long time. We don't really think he looks right. We had an old x-ray machine at Pine Street. We took this x-ray and it was you know, basically the worst tuberculosis I had ever seen, cavitary TB, loss of volume, right apical pneumothorax. And this man had probably been in the shelter with 900 people coughing that stuff up for months. And I had missed it because he had no fever. You know, it was chronic enough that I had missed it. And so all of a sudden I realized I'm going from thinking I'm really good to understanding this is a humbling experience and I'm going to have to learn how to work with everybody to take care of it. So it, it was a real challenge. We had so little control over what happens other than writing a script, and making a diagnosis that we had to learn how to be public health clinicians and work with a community and work with a broad community before we get anything done. Wow. Yeah. I, and there's so many themes there that I want to, I want to discuss with you, but you know, the TB thing brings, brings us to the, the question about, about AIDS actually, because it, you know, you worked with the homeless during the AIDS crisis and maybe you can talk a bit about that experience. You know, it seems so far off to us now. I mean, to me, this is just, that world is, is foreign because we have so many uh, treatments and combinations of treatments. I just, I, I can't imagine what it was like um, facing down patients with a disease or trying to help patients with a disease. You know, you know, we had very little understanding, not to mention very few ideas about what could be helpful or unhelpful. Um, maybe you can talk a bit about that in in the population you were treating. Yeah, no, and it was it, it also for me was a really 
you know, frightening and humbling experience and a helpless feeling experience. So when I was an intern at MGH in 1982, we saw what was arguably our very first person who had been diagnosed with AIDS. And by the time I finished, we had the ICU was about half full of people with AIDS, but most of them were, you know, from the traditional, you know, it was, they were, you know, Haitians and heroin addicts and, you know, the, the, the four H's, which is not a good way to say it anymore. But it had, when I got to the shelters, there was no one that we knew of that had AIDS at that time. So this would be 1985. And we had just gotten the, the, the ability to know what the virus was and test for it. Up until then, it, had, it was a clinical diagnosis. So you had to wait till somebody got these awful opportunistic infections. And then you could say, otherwise healthy, shouldn't get this, must be acquired immunodeficiency disease. And so I remember the very first person, we have a respite program, which the homeless people that put us together insisted that we come up with a thing they called respite care, which was their way of condemning me and other doctors for sending people out of the hospital when they're way too sick after a major medical thing going on. And they have no place to go. They don't have a home with a home, you know, with a family to support them and visiting nurses and all that. So they would go back to the shelters of the streets and be condemned to walking around all day. And they were incensed by that. So they told us that we had to come up with some sort of a unit where people could go after the hospital. Basically, I think of it as a step-down hospital, someplace where we can go and provide 24-hour nursing and doctor care. And we opened that unit in September of 1985. Remember, it was the first one of our first innovations. The governor of Massachusetts, which was Governor Dukakis at the time, gave us 25 beds in a public health hospital shelter. And we started out not knowing what to do. And about two days after we opened, the very first person came in that was diagnosed with AIDS while living in the shelters or on the streets came in. He was on ambulatory peritoneal dialysis. The hospital had let him go because he didn't need to be there, but there was no way to do that on the streets. And that became the beginning of what was really the TB epidemic. Interestingly, had 60 cases of active TB, most of which was MDR, sort of resistant to both INH and strep. And then none of those were immunocompromised of an interest. They mostly all alcoholic men, not immunocompromised. But then AIDS comes along. And within, I would say within two months, we had, we were deluged with people being diagnosed with AIDS. And there was, just for, so everyone knows, there was no treatment at that time, nothing. And we just sat helplessly by trying to treat these progressive opportunistic infections, knowing that after a year or two, almost everyone would die. We didn't actually know at that time that there were even these long-term non-progresses. So I just remember feeling utterly helpless and discouraged as a doctor as I watched these people as getting attached to living without any support of any kind on the streets or in the shelters, you know, getting acute care when they needed it in the hospital, but getting nothing after that. And so we, you know, it, it was about as discouraging a time as I can remember, but uh, on the good side, and then we had AZT came along, and AZT probably would know that AZT was the first treatment and we had to take it every four hours around the clock, which provided an interesting dilemma in the shelters because we had to set alarm clocks and wake people up. But then when everyone else in the shelter knew if you were being awakened by this alarm clock every four hours, you must have AIDS. And it was at that time really stigmatizing to be known as AIDS, especially in the shelter. And then you were shunned. So that was particularly bad. And then it turned out that was not an effective medication at all. But then in 1995, 96, the protease inhibitors came along. And it was like a miracle to us because all these people who were basically near death or heading toward death started taking these pills and then were back to living relatively normal lives. 
when I think of medical miracles in my life, that was clearly one of them. It's also made me very hard to be upset with any biotech or pharma company who comes up with these cures um, at whatever cost, which is way too much. I know that, but it was a miracle in our lives. Wow. And what other medical problems, you know, we talked about TB, AIDS, what other medical problems are you frequently, do you frequently take care of? You know, how does disease differ in homeless patients from non-homeless? I've been struck by, well, there certainly are exotic diseases that we see in the shelters and on the streets that I only saw in the textbooks. But for the most part, the bulk of what we do is taking care of the, the normal, acute, and chronic diseases. The difference is that they've been neglected. We're seeing the natural history of things because they were never treated. We're seeing pneumococcal pneumonia, you know, not stopped with, you know, penicillin or whatever we're giving within two or three days, but nine days later when they were getting septic, you know, it was like really what we used to read about in the books and, you know, infections that were just neglected. I did get very good, you know, and anyone working in the shelters, you get really good at infestations, scabies, lice. We saw a lot of scabies. I mean, we saw a sort of a lot of scabies plus lice, but we also saw, um, you know, sort of the vitamin deficiencies that you would you only read about in the textbooks. We saw scurvy a lot, for example. We saw pellagra, and those things I had never seen, but we saw them out there. And then the big the big one I would say in a cold climate like Boston had, we got really good at frostbite, and you know, people were you know every winter many people lost digits, you know, feet hands, you know, it was like that. And that was really hard to deal with because that was a, you know, one of those completely preventable things that happened because people were out exposed to the elements without a safe place to be. Mm. And just a sort of practical question, what are you capable of doing in the office for these patients versus when do you have to send them to the emergency room. You know, you mentioned this 24-hour kind of a step down from the hospital care, but what is it, what do things look like now, especially when you're dealing with things like frostbite or, you know, um, amputation, whatever it is, you know, how, how do you sort of make that distinction of when a patient needs to go to the hospital and when you can take care of things? I you know I think it goes back to you know, the model of care that we've sort of evolved was a model that was given to us by these homeless people, these very feisty homeless folks who got together back in 1984 with the mayor of Boston, who was receiving the grant that started us. And their big emphasis, to be honest, was continuity of care. They were very incensed by the fragmentation and the care that they received. They go to the emergency room and they were you know, when they were so sick, they couldn't walk around anymore, go to the emergency room, they'd see someone, there'd be no follow-up, or if they didn't have follow-up, it was by somebody else. And so they they felt they deserved. They also made a point of saying we need, they wanted a program based on social justice, not on charity. And I had come in with every friend I knew, I had su- subscribed to, to, to get them to volunteer and help out. My friend's going to Durham, cardiology. So we had it knocked. We knew exactly what we wanted to do to set up this thing. When the homeless people went, no, they don't want that. They didn't want, they wanted full, a full-time doctor and a full-time services. They wanted us to be available 24-7. And they wanted to know that if they saw me on a Monday or saw a team on a Monday, I shouldn't be claiming me on this. So a team with about six or seven of us at the time. They wanted to know that we'd be there on Wednesday or Friday, whenever they needed. Not, so they wouldn't let us use a volunteer. So for five years, they would not let us use a volunteer. I'm a 
I'm a big believer in volunteerism. But from the eyes of a homeless person back then, that was just perpetuating this kind of fragmented charitable system. It didn't feel to them just. Um, so we had to, you know, get used to doing that. Now I say all that because what they we then had to do was they made us stay. This is really interesting to me because I would never have done it myself. But they said they wanted continuity of care and had literally wrote it in a legal document that the mayor mayor had to sign. Continuity of care from the shelter in the street right through to the hospital to respite care. And by that they meant when we as the clinicians had to go out to wherever they were, go out to the shelters and the streets to, to take care of them regularly. But if they needed to go to the hospital, that's when they felt most frightened and most stigmatized. They wanted us to be there to care for them, or at least be involved in their care. So they knew someone. And back in 1985, just so you guys would know, most of us who were becoming internists or primary care docs, you took care of your patients when they went into the hospital, sometimes with the house staff running the team, but you would be involved. So this was kind of an expectation back then. Um, and then what they, what we started to realize that it was this continuity of care, getting to know someone slowly over time that gave you a sense of, you know, when, when to call an emergency and when not to call an emergency. I mean, there are obvious things from, you know, when somebody's got a broken arm or something, we, we always send people to the emergency room. But there's an awful lot of stuff we can do preventively when you have nightly clinics in the shelter. So when people come in off the streets into the shelter, you can see them with your docs and nurse practitioners and PAs. And it's amazing how much preventive care. I, can't, I wish we had done a study because we, we don't have a before to measure. But, you know, there's, you know hundreds of visits going on every night in the shelters of Boston that are happening there rather than in a more acute emergency room or urgent care setting. Um, but that's not to say I don't want to pretend we, we see an awful lot of stuff that requires a 911 and got to get people right in. But the nice thing is then we're, we can call the emergency room and be do a, you know, and expect just like all of us do when you've got a patient that's going in. So rather than going in as an anonymous unknown, what's going on, we can call and say, just saw this person in the shelter. We know well he has, you know, rheumatoid arthritis and something else is coming in with, you know, an inflamed elbow or something. So it's been, I think that continuity of care was brilliant on their part. It looks a little bit to me, and you know, I'm not talking too much here on you, but it looks a little bit to me like what my family doctor was like when I was growing up, you know, somebody who lived in the community, he had delivered my mom. When we got sick as kids, we had to go upstairs and he would show up sometime in the afternoon to see us, but he knew everything about the house. He knew what, you know, what, what were the problems in our family and what was, and, you know, and he would be at social events. He would be at dinners that we would go, you know, it was sort of a part of the community doc. And I think for very vulnerable and excluded populations, it's not a bad model to think about because the more you can be part of their lives or they can be part of yours, the more likely you think you are to be able to, catch things early and talk people, convince people to take medications, et cetera. That must've been extraordinarily difficult to get off the ground. I mean, I just think about the logistics of that all um, with a, a population that is so vulnerable, getting the emergency room doctors to know who to call if some, you know, if they showed up, if patients showed up in the emergency room, and, you know, it, ju it, it just seems like it would have been extraordinarily difficult to do. Did you encounter a lot of resistance from colleagues or the institution, or did was every did things go pretty smoothly? No, you know, I would. Uh, the truth is, it went. I don't wouldn't say it went smoothly. It was really difficult, and there were a lot of challenges. But I think we had the advantage, and I, you know, my 
lucky stars to this, but you know, we were a citywide program. So grant had been given to the mayor. So we had the support of the mayor. And you know, in Massachusetts, we don't have counties, we have just the cities. And we had the mayor's support. And because the homeless people had made the chiefs of medicine of our two hospitals sign on, we had the full support of Boston City Hospital, which has now become Boston Medical Center. They were the city hospital that traditionally took care of most homeless people. So there was a great spirit there. And then Mass General, which is where I tried, was the other hospital that they pulled in. Mass General sort of sees the second most, uh, second largest number of homeless people in the city. And, um, they were fully behind it. And, you know, in fact, my chief of medicine, who is a phenomenal man named John Potts, was part of making me do this. He was working with the mayor. And so when the mayor said, we need a full-time doctor, I get conscripted to do this for a year. But in exchange for that, we had full, you know, full access to the hospitals. And because of what the homeless people decided, and I think of this often as a real you know, as a glimpse into what I would urge us to do in the future, is we had to be on the staffs of those two hospitals. So we weren't outside doctors referring in and, you know, help hoping people. We were on the staff. So, for example, when one of my patients would show up, I'll never forget this, who had, we knew he was, he had AIDS, and he had come in acting a little bit funny, and he was having trouble moving one of his hands. And I remember he was sent out saying as a, maling- as a malingro, sent back to the streets and turned out he, you know, he was having PML at the time. And, uh, you know, I was able to, I realized you could then write to your friends who are running the emergency room and say, Hey, uh, I didn't want to talk about the homelessness. I want to talk about this was the di- here's what's going on. And what we noticed is when there was an exchange, you know, a, you know, exchange among colleagues, then it becomes much more about how do we take care of good medical care of people? And it's not about, oh, these homeless people, how do we get them out of there? So that really, I've been impressed. Now, the problem for us in Boston is we have about 12 academic teaching hospitals. So to be part of all of those is pretty tough. But I would say over time, there's been a pretty good feeling by the hospital community and the shelter community to say, let's figure this out. And uh, it's been a blessing to work in. And we have in Massachusetts a really creative and progressive Medicaid, Medicaid department that, you know, has tried to make sure we, you know, can get these folks will have access to good care. Has this been replicated in any other cities? Uh, there are, you know, the, the interesting evolution of our program. So there were 19 cities that received these four-year Robert Johnson Foundation programs, uh, all given to us mayors of different cities. They had to be cities of 250,000 people or more. So it was an urban homelessness issue. And I think because this grant was given on the er- when homelessness was just on the early upswing for what I would think of as this modern thing, it wasn't so overwhelming that people weren't still really interested in getting hold of it. So that happened. But then when the four years ended, we all thought it would be, a, it was a temporary emergency. We all go and get other jobs after four years, but homelessness just get gradually worse and worse each year. And the government then made, decided to fund our programs when the grant ended under what's called Section 330 or 340 and 329 of the Public Health Service Act. So we became funded as if we were what were called federally qualified health centers. So there are now 300 or more healthcare for the homeless programs funded by the federal government all over the country and in Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. And what we've learned is we all were able to, you know, build Justice Community Health Centers Bill. And in each locale, the politics and the alignments are different. So every one of us looks a little different. 
<laughs> so in answer to your question, we've been, in many ways, I think we've been, parts of our program have been replicated in many places. So you can't do it because you need a Massachusetts Medicaid or a, a, you know, a community, a set of community health centers and hospitals are willing to do that. My big concern as I get older and look at this is how to, I mean, this is a population I think is this, it's way separate than anything I ever thought about. The, you know, the, the, the burden of co-occurring medical and psychiatric and substance use disorders in this population of very chronically homeless folks. I don't want to you know, say this is all homeless people, but the ones who you see living on the streets chronically and in the shelters, it's huge. Taking care of them requires not only getting out to the community and doing everything you can in the community, but you need specialty care. You need imaging. You need uh, inpatient care. I mean, the leading cause of death for us is still cancer outside of drug overdose coming up now, cancer and heart disease. And you can't take care of that unless you've got access to specialty care. So the involvement of hospitals in the care, what I would argue is among our sicker and more excluded populations is critical. And I think one one nice thing about Boston is we have had that involvement. You know, we always love it if it would get more, but that involvement has always been there and the commitment has been there. And I'd love to see that all over the country because I think that's where the I think that's where if we're going to really offer great quality care to the poorest of our folks, then you've got to have the hospitals involved. I hope so. When did this concept of these night rounds occur? You know, Tracy Kidder wrote this book about about you and your experience and mentioned this approach of, you know, driving around and finding some of the homeless patients to see if they needed anything, bringing them food, you know, basic medical care, blankets, things like that, you know, late in the evening on these freezing cold nights. When did that come into play for you? It came in relatively early. And although I have to admit, when we started, we thought we were doing a great job. We were getting out to the shelters and doing clinics in the shelters, you know, had the hospital clinics every day to back them up. So we had used those as our anchor clinics and we had opened our respite program. But that first winter, so the winter of 85, 86, we realized that most of the people who were dying were the people who were outside, not coming in. So, And we hadn't been getting to them, mostly because we didn't really understand it at the time. Boston, by the way, for those who might be listening, is one of those cities like you know New York and, and other East Coast cities, probably like Philadelphia, where most of the people are sheltered. 95 or 96% of all homeless people in Boston are in a shelter on any given night and only a small percentage outside. So we were blinded to that when we first started. But when we started seeing who was dying, then we realized we were really, we had really blown it. And the State Department of Public Health, recognizing that deaths tended to happen there, actually funded a, a, one of the shelters, Pine Street Inn, to have a van that goes out every night from nine at night till five in the morning. And it has become basically my spiritual home if I had one, talk about foot soaking. But it's run by these unbelievable people who are paid full-time job, who most of whom have been homeless or experienced homelessness at some point. Many are in recovery. You know, they're really diverse, but they're on this van every single night of the year and have been now for the last 37 years. And they know everybody outside. We have five or 600 people living out on the streets of Boston. It's a relatively small geographic area. And I would argue the van knows 98% of them. <laughs> and they know them by consistently being there every night. And now I argued when it first was starting, I wanted it to be a medical van because <laughs> I thought this is the perfect time we'll get medical care right out. And the homeless people that had put us together who were still 
By the way, many of them are still on our board of directors, so they are my bosses. But they weren't interested in having a doctor or a nurse show up at four o'clock in the morning or two in the morning. What they wanted was just what you mentioned, Aaron. So they wanted blankets, soup, sandwiches, clothing, and a friendly face to make sure they were okay. And you know, so the compromise was that I got to um, ride along serving stuff. On, I've done it two or three nights a week for many years up until COVID. And you serve sandwiches and tell people, you know, if you need anything, I happen to be a doctor. So it wasn't leading with the medicine or the psychiatrist leading with the food and the blankets. And it was kind of brilliant. So, you know, I learned, if you come to Boston, if you learn, we're looking for somebody who's on the street who I used to think would be the hardest people to find, call the van at, you know, nine o'clock and say, can you guys go find so-and-so? And, you know, 90 plus percent of the time, they'll find that person in 20 minutes. And it's remarkable. That is incredible. You know, back to this this uh, Tracy Kidder's book, uh, Rough Sleepers. You know, one of the things that is described in that book is how you would give some of your patients money. And I I remember as a resident at Bellevue Hospital in New York. You know, one of my favorite attendings. So I just really looked up to. I remember him giving a patient, homeless patient, uh, $40 before the patient left against medical advice. He was a heroin addict and said he needed money to get to, to a relative's house. And one can imagine the two forces pulling at us when we um, hear that request, right? There's the, the sympathy on the one hand and the cynicism on the other. And I wasn't sure as a trainee what to make of that. Can you take us through this, this process of how you think about these things? How do you think about the battle between you know, cynicism and, and trust? Well, you just um, you just described that so beautifully, Aaron. I've got to package that and bring it back to our staff. But it is that battle between cynicism and optimism, I guess. Uh, it was different. What happened for me is, like, you know, I was trained basically by these nurses who had been working in the trenches for years. You know, they made me sew feet. They made me do all sorts of things that I didn't think were smart as doctors, but they said, no, you got to do this. And what was remarkable to me was their approach to people was one always big deal. They always acknowledged somebody wherever they were. They would say, hi, Joe, I can't give you anything tonight or hello. It would be the most important thing was just to acknowledge people. Then the next thing I noticed as they knew people and they knew what was going on, they would, you know, they'd give whatever it was that they thought might help get them through the night. And I think I just lost that ability to say, you know, which, you know, should I give them? I didn't have any money then, so a dollar might be a lot, or a Dunkin' Donuts card was a lot. So I, I, I think I grew up not thinking of that as a dilemma in any way. Until later on, you know, I start as I got to know people, and then there were people started saying, you know, you shouldn't give money because who knows they're going to go buy drugs with it. And I got caught in my own, and this is a tough one. I still don't know what the right answer is on this. But I, as I knew people and I wanted to give them five bucks or 10 bucks, I started thinking, you know, I don't want anyone who gives me money telling me what to do with it. <laughs> and I said, you know, that's it's one of the few choices they have in their life. I can give them some money if I have it and, you know, hope they're going to go buy a good meal with it. But I don't know what they're going to do for sure. So I let that go because I, you know, these are people I knew and I was taken care of. But that's not without controversy. There's an awful lot of people on our team and our program who just think that's awful to do, that it's just enabling people to do something bad. So I, I accept that there, this is tricky. And I also acknowledge that I've sort of evolved over time. I didn't do this in the beginning. I would do it, you know. So I don't, I don't know the right answer, but I would just 
warn everybody that that's always going to pull your heartstrings because often $15 to get the train ticket to get back to Worcester will give somebody a place to sleep for the night. So do you get that 15 bucks or not? If you were near the train station, you could buy the ticket, but usually we're not. <laughs> so I think all of that, you know, just gets, you know, it gets thrown in. I think I've, I've just put up the white flag and I, if I have money, I don't want to, and I can give it to somebody, I'll give it to them and just hope for the best. I'd love to meet you, met your attending, by the way, I need him now or her. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he, yes. He retired uh, uh, like a year or two after I graduated, fortunately, but he was, yeah, he was a really wonderful physician too. By the way, I should interrupt you and say that, you know, when I started, our models, our heroes were all at Bellevue. So you, Bellevue was, it was the hospital that I most cherished and most adored because they were out, they were, their psychiatrists were out seeing people on the street. The clinics there were amazing, especially the mental health clinics that I remember going down and visiting. And they were also, when we were just beginning to see a few people with AIDS in our community back in the early 80s, Bellevue was full of people and was they were the experts. And we called them all the time saying, what do we do now? So thank you to uh, you and your predecessors down there. They were really heroic. Yeah, it's a, it's a tremendous place. It really is. I want to talk about uh, medication. I don't know what we what the right way to say it now is adherence, or I guess uh, yeah, let's say adherence, medication adherence. So you you know you're you're getting um, trying to get homeless patients with these chronic diseases to to take medications to see you in clinic to go to the hospital, and you know your writing indicates that these pleas sort of often fall on deaf ears, or often enough they fall on deaf ears, and. To me, that's one of the most frustrating things as a physician because we want our patients to be healthier. We think we know how to make them healthier, but there is this. Uh, but there's also like an element of ego in all that because we think I'm right. I know what's best for you. You know, I've gone through all this training, uh, and occasionally pride gets in the way and makes us more frustrated when patients don't listen to us probably than we ought to be. How do you think about this in the context of of treating homeless patients? another complicated thing which has haunted us for years so i think i take some solace in when you look at studies of adherence to medications by all populations you know it's something like somewhere less than 40 percent of people actually take their medicines the way we're supposed to so it's not like we've got a real high bar to <laughs> to go for so i think our realistic thing is we know we, we are very judicious about the medicines we prescribe and usually prescribe the ones that will be most important for that person to take and then try to get concentrate on getting to take a few medications regularly and not worry with the things. I remember we used to send people out of the hospital with 25 medications, you know, and you realize no one's going to take that on the street. But if you gave them three that were really key, they might take it. So there was that. And then we also had to get used to the fact that something that you can take once a day, which is usually more expensive, is more likely to get to somebody than something you take four times a day. So we had to cope with that for a long time. But I think what we learned over time is that adherence to medications roughly parallels the trust they have in the person prescribing it. And what we've just seen, like, you know, for example, I can tell you, we have, you know, talk about a revolution or a remarkable changeover. So we have a really, really wonderful HIV team led by a, great doctor who trained at the Brigham named Dr. Jen Brody. And her team follows, you know, several hundred homeless people, still homeless, living on the streets with HIV. And they, uh, you know, 
they chase them down with their medications. They have this great way of doing it. And about 90% of them are virally suppressed, which means they're at least taking the medicines most of the time. So when we have a way to measure that a medication is being tested and we have the right support in place and the right people going for that, it tends to work amazingly well. Diabetes is a little trickier because there's so many different medicines that need to be taken here and there. And, you know, and nobody has control of their diet on the street, if you think about it. They're going to drink, you know, one of the things I have learned, if you've got five bucks, you're not going to go to Whole Foods and buy an apple. You're going to go to McDonald's and buy the most, get the most calories you can get into your system. And we're not going to beat that one until we fix the food deserts around the country. But uh, we haven't given up. We think when you know people and you can work with them and see them frequently, it's another thing I should have put up. We learned that seeing somebody once every three months is not a particularly effective way to take care of people who are currently on the streets or nothing. But we see them, you know, we'll see them weekly or biweekly, sometimes every other day, either on the streets or on the van or someplace, and then constantly be reminding them of what they need to do, which medicines we really urge them to do. And I think while we're not perfect, I bet we're close to the 40%. Do you ever feel yourself getting frustrated? Feel like you're Sisyphus or something like that, you know, trying to move something that won't move? Yeah, I think we've had to contend with the fact that, in fact, we are Sisyphus, not, not the mythical character, but the real, that we aren't getting that, that we're not getting that uh, older up the hill for very long. And then learning to live with that reality, I think, is really the challenge now. I don't know if, if Tracy put this in a book now, but I've often, if you read Camus' you know, treatment of the myth of Sisyphus, he talks about what does Sisyphus think about on that walk down each night when he's been all day walking the boulder up, and then as he walks down, realizing it's all gone all the way to the bottom, and he has to start all over again. You know, And in some way in there, you realize that it's the journey up the hill that can be where the joy or the you know, where the devotion can be and not let yourself get too discouraged when it goes down because those are forces beyond your control. So I think what we all do in our program is struggle with the fact that sometimes success is measured so incrementally it feels frustrating. Often success is a failure. You know, you fail completely. But, you know, over time, I think we've all realized the privilege of getting to know people, you know, who and I often miss it. It's the first time I meet somebody who's been living on the streets a long time. I never trust what I'm thinking because as I learn what the story is over the course of the next month, or you learn astonishing stories of courage and you know fighting, bring pushing boulders uphill against all odds, and they can't get them up there. And then you kind of you you become you cherish the relationship you're able to build. This person's letting you into their life. You're willing to stand with them, whether it's light or dark, and you know, and that I think that's kind of what we, I would say, we as doctors really bought into. You know, you want to minimize suffering, take care of people, be there with them. And the forces we can't change out there, we could rail against. But I think it's much better, as the nurses told me, just dig in and take care of the people in front of you because that's a job for society. We want to be part of that. But right now, we're just trying to take care of this person who's just been diagnosed with advanced lung cancer. You know, we want to take care of them. Are there stories that stand out? in your mind or, you know, one or two where you were totally bowled over by the, the courage that you found in that person or, um, the complexity of the prior life that led them to, to where they are now. Uh, maybe you can just give us a, an example or two. Yeah, sure. There's, you know, there are many, one of the, one of the things that I think keeps us all going is as you get to know these folks, the stories can be 
you know, just awe-inspiring as well as, you know, frightening. I'll give you one story of uh, somebody I met really the first night I was actually out of the van. He was a very slender man, probably weighed about 95 pounds, and he walked around all night long. And he was just really friendly. His name was, first name was Michael, and he was really friendly. And he had such street smarts. He knew, you know, he used to stand outside of Starbucks, listen to Starbucks back then, it was something else. And he knew how to, you know, street smart, get money, to people to give him money. And he would know everybody's name. He would stand there and he'd go, Mrs. So-and-so, how are you doing? You know, and he, I just was astonished by this guy. And then we were taking care of him. He had a lot of issues going on, including some kidney failure. And he was pretty much addicted to cocaine, which is how he was staying so slim. But he was like, you know, that's what kept him going. And I realized as I took care of him over time, you know, that he, you know, had, you know, had un, un speakable abuse when he was a kid in all sorts of ways, physical, sexual, emotional. And then he had never learned how to read or write. He had been in a school where no one paid attention to his ADD, right? And he just was treated as a kid, a troublemaker rather than given services. And he ends up on the streets, unable to read or write, but with these kind of savvy street smarts. You just couldn't help but love him. You know, he's a great guy. But we spent 25 years taking care of him on the street, trying to get him into care. But he just couldn't sit still long enough to go through all the stuff. And eventually we were able to get him into housing and he was thrilled. I couldn't believe it. He got into housing and he thrived. He got a cat. His cat was really, we used to go visit him at home. Um, and as we visited him at home, he would always get like, in fact, I visited him with Tracy a few times and he would say, okay, you guys, you're going to move the furniture. We'd have to move all this furniture around. And I forget thinking Tracy, oh God, Tracy's going to kill me for doing this. But he was delightful. And he would always call, I shouldn't say, he would frequently call and say, hey, Doc, I need a, a meatball sub from the same old place in Jamaica Plain. Can you get it to me? You know, and so stuff like that. And then you'd bring it to him and he'd say, thank you, but sort of an expectation. Thank you, but you sh- that's your job. And then I came in one day and he had lymph nodes all in the super, huge, super clavicular nodes. You know, it turns out it was prostate cancer that was metastatic everywhere. And we brought him upstairs and he got all the chemotherapy and radiation and stuff that would, was recommended then. And I'll never forget visiting him. He was getting his chemotherapy and went up to say hi in the upstairs on MGH. And he's in his chemotherapy thing. I'm feeling terrible for him, getting all his infusions. But he's there in a bed, you know, with the pillows behind him. He's got a TV in front of him. The nurses are bringing him some food. And he's smiling and crazy. He said, Doc, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me. And I was like, oh, my God, this guy. Anyway, he went on. We got him back home. And eventually, you know, after four years, this it became terminal. So we had to get him into the hospital so we could get him into a place where he lived alone. So he wasn't going to be able to handle the pain at home. He tried, but the pain was too much. And so he's at Mass General waiting to go to you know, as soon as the bed would open up at a place where he could go and die. And he calls up and he says, I need a Big Mac, but no lettuce, please, no lettuce, right? And I'm like, oh my God, this guy's dying. And he's asked me for a Big Mac. So I went to the hospital to see him. And he's like, he looks like terrible. He must weigh 68 pounds now. And he just looks awful. But I came in with a Big Mac and he wakes up and he looks at it and he sits right up and he smiles broadly and he starts eating this Big Mac. And I was thinking the lesson in this for me was, this man just cherished every moment. He wasn't thinking about tomorrow or even 10 minutes from now. 
this was the joy of the moment. And so I like, like farmer, I never say bad things about McDonald's anymore. This is just <laughs> too much joy came out of this. And he died like uh, two or three days later. And then there was a funeral for him. He had been around Beacon Hill, which is our rich part of town. And almost every, everyone on Beacon Hill used the Starbucks that he used to send out him. So they had a service for him, you know, Dozens and dozens of people came out, the Boston Globe wrote a column about him. And it was like, this this guy was loved by his community. And I kind of wish he had been alive to see the funeral and the remembrance for him. Anyway, he sticks out as somebody that we took care of from the streets, you know, through lots of medical problems, into his housing, visit him at home. That's where we, we spent a lot of time doing home visits to the people who lived on the streets for a long time. And then when he really needed good care, he got the best of care and then died, you know, with the people around him that he really wanted to have around me. Remarkable. I, you know, I hear stories like that. And I, and then I think about the state of our medical profession and it really seems to be in a bit of a crisis at the moment, you know, burnout is soaring. And I, a lot of physicians, I think feel that they've lost their purpose. It, you know, we've discussed this with prior guests on the podcast. Um, but you know, you wrote that your job quote, would challenge the patience of Job, but I find richness and fulfillment I can't quite explain. Uh, given the patients you treat, do you feel burned out? Do you think there's uh, more meaning to your work because it isn't consumed by maybe the frills and accoutrement of, of like modern big medicine? You know, I, I, wor- I share what you're saying, by the way, Aaron, that, you know, I worry a lot about the direction of we're all pulled in as physicians and caregivers now that you know it takes more and more of the uh, more and more away from the time you get to spend with the people you're trying to care for and the paperwork and the in baskets and the stuff that really get to us but i i realized that you know in many ways even though i did this for, i was only going to do this for a year because i really wanted my career to be somewhere else i was actually going to go to new york and do oncology but i realized in some upside down way i lucked out because one you know our we have to go to wherever people are. So we spend time in shelters, on the streets, on a van at nighttime. We have a respite program. You know, we can see people in the hospital. And we're a little bit absolved from the pressure of productivity because if you try to see homeless people fast, you fail. If you can't spend 20 minutes or an hour, if you have to, or even an hour and a half, you're never going to get anywhere. So we've had to construct a world where, you know, Medicaid only pays for a certain amount, and then we have to figure out how to get the dollars to make sure you can take the time. And in doing that, I think I think we kind of have a life that most of us really enjoy. Is so here's what I would caution though. I think the overall the you know the arc of homelessness has gone the wrong way. And I think it's really infuriating that we haven't been able to figure out as a society how to minimize this. I think we're gonna have to fix schools and racism and poverty and a lot of other things in addition to making enough housing for everybody who are really going to address the problem. But in the meantime, what we're doing is taking care of people sort of, you know, where they are and taking care of them with whatever they need. And we have the ability to be creative in all of that. You know, I get to visit everybody at home when they're home. You know, how much of a privilege can that be? You know, And there are people that I've known for 20 and 30 years. So it's like an old time practice. And for most of our folks, I would argue that the day to day is mostly a lot of joy. Okay. There is a lot of discouragement with so many deaths because death is over. But aside from the deaths and losing those people you got very attached to, most of the day-to-day stuff is a joy. At the same time, we go home and scream about the societal tragedy that is homelessness. So balancing those two things, I think, has been what keeps us going. 
And when it comes to providing medical care, how do you or do you like measure the the difference you make in in the the patients you're you're treating? I think our commitment is to try to provide the same quality care to a homeless population as we would expect ourselves to provide anywhere. So we try to do all the things you're very familiar with, all the quality measures, you know, hemoglobin A1Cs, you know, in the sevens or below, you know, hypertension, you know, checking blood pressure regularly, aspirin with heart failure with um, after an MI. So we try to do that because we really believe that that's what we should be doing for everybody. But at the same time, we know that you know, most people are not, you know, most, most people are dying in their forties and fifties and stuff. So the determinant, this is where I struggle and I'd love your help someday on this. So the social determinants of health, which I strongly believe in for the people we're caring for who have been chronically on the streets, those happened 30 and 40 years ago. And I can't change the fact that they had so much abuse as a child or their foster care setting was really horrible or they never learned to read or write because some school system didn't recognize the need or they were in the criminal justice system and suffered all the racial issues going on. So when we see them now at age 40 or 45 or 50 and they have cancer, it's not much we can do to change those social determinants other than ask society to please don't let this happen. And so we have to let that go and take care of the person in front of you, whatever their needs are. I don't think anymore we're dealing with determinants of their health. We're really trying to make sure we address their needs, particularly making sure they don't suffer and that they get the best of care for their cancer or for their COPD or their heart disease, heart failure. And I think that's kind of where we focus on it. But if we were to step back and say, you know, it's like, I remember at Mass General, we used to, somebody died, you know, and you'd say, let's check to be sure all the numbers are right before they died, you know, because that was how you felt. And fact is the numbers can be all right, but if the person died, you know, what's, what, what, what is the important thing here? So we're a little bit in that same spot. We're working, make sure we meet all the numbers, really do the quality measures, but recognizing that we're still failing to extend the life of people whose social determinants happened so far ago. One of the other themes that seems to come up here a lot, and, and I mean, you can open up a newspaper every day and see this theme the concept of civil liberties and freedom with the urge to get you know get people off the streets or get them to a hospital or a home or a psychiatric institution uh, you know where do liberties end and you know medical paternalism begin because i there are cases that are not clear i mean you you know it's easy to come up with examples that are very clear but I, life is rarely uh like that um you know how do you uh, navigate that or think about that um, because I, I I figure it comes up more often in this population than than with others. Yeah, we navigate that with exquisite difficulty, to be very frank with you. And frequently we're on, you know, even within our own team, you know, I work on the street team. Frequently we're at odds even within our team. We've learned not to beat each other up on that. that there are two versions <laughs> of this. But it's complicated. And I, I'll, I'll share with you the first nights I was going out in the van, you know, and I was like thrilled to be, I'd known the shelter very well, didn't know the streets. And I was horrified to see people that at that time were like my mother's age on the streets on a cold night. And I wanted to basically bring everybody in. You know, I thought this is, we can't allow this to happen. And the van folks are really calming and always been like, you know, keep me keep me honest and humble. We say, look, if we do that, no one is ever going to come to us again. We have to take care of these people and be very judicious in who we think needs to come in. So I learned to step way back and 
unless I know there's something really dangerous going on immediately, we don't even, we don't go there very often. And my, the story that I frequently tell, I don't know if Tracy shared it or not, but it was, um, I learned my lesson because it was a woman who, you know, on the van, once I let that go on the van, our goal was to get people to accept our sandwiches and our blankets and to be in a conversation, get them to know who we were and not be frightened of us. And that was a real victory on the van. That's what we saw as we want them to know us. So if there's any trouble, they're going to ask us for it and do that. There was one woman who um, lived out on a street corner and I could tell you the whole story about her. She lived on a stoop, I'm sorry, down by one of the train stations. We'd see her night after night for years took us years to get her to finally accept a, a, a bowl of soup, you know, or something like that. And when she did, we felt like we had really done our job. So we really looked on her every night. The fans checked on her every night. really, And she was there forever. So you couldn't argue there was anything imminently dangerous. I thought she should, if it were my mother, I would not want her out there. But, you know, I had to cope with that. But then, you know, one day she lost it. By the report, she got really angry, had a, you know, an episode, a psychotic episode, yelled at a passerby of something, got brought by the police to the emergency room. We didn't see her again. And then I would guess maybe two years later, I'm at a meeting at a shelter on the South Shore of Boston. And at that meeting, there she was. I hadn't seen her in two years and she was dressed really nicely. And she was now a member of the, of the consumer board of this particular shelter. And she had been, you know, admitted to a psych hospital, got a medication, got better, you know, got much better and was able to go now live um, in a, you know, sheltered home down on this. And I went up to say, how oh, fabulous. I thought, she, I said, you, you look great. You know, it's so nice to see you. And she looked at me and, you know, almost spit by saying, you know, you, and she used some real expletives, you know, you effing bastard. She said, you left me out there for 10 years and did nothing. And I was like paralyzed you know, because that's true. We hadn't thought we were doing the right thing. And she was pointing out, I think, to us, although she's never really talked, that, you know, there are brain diseases that are happening. And if this were, she had a gaping wound, we'd probably bring her in to take care of the wound. But because her brain is that's ill, we weren't, we were giving her lots of room to make decisions that she couldn't really make. So I worry a lot about that. When is somebody making choices that they really mean to check? So when are they choosing to be out there of their own will versus when are they just unable to make the, see through logically the danger of what they're doing? So we struggle with that all the time. The bottom line for us now, and I know this is a big issue for New York, is you know we don't want to bring anyone in ever now unless we arrange to have good care after the emergency room because you know so many people are languishing for three and four days in the emergency room, then they say you can go now because you've, you know, you're now okay to go back. And then we've lost our ability to, uh, we've lost the trust we've earned in that person when they come back. So we make sure when they, we, we work it out with everybody in the emergency room, we're going to send them in, here's what's going on, and then make sure there's a way to get them to us, to some appropriate facility after the emergency room. Hmm. Yeah. And I was, this, this dilemma, I, I think, surprised me in a certain sense because you we expect that oh if we just offer this they'll say yes or you know they'll want to come with us or you know um accept that help and we ignore that there's this incredibly complex uh history for a lot of these folks who are homeless and that there is in some sense a comfort blanket 
this, and this is my perception, so tell me if I'm wrong, of being in that community of people, you know, the, the stories that you tell in the book, story that Trace, stories that Tracy tells in his book, you know, it seems like there, there are these groups that are very close. And so leaving those groups to be with, to follow someone who doesn't have the same level of trust or understanding of what you're going through can be very difficult. And there's a lot, it seems that there's a lot of resistance to that. Is that accurate, you think? Oh, I, I think it is incredibly accurate. What I remember when I first started, I had read a lot of the anthropologic literature about um, homelessness, just trying to see if I could get grounding. And there were, there were arguments in there about whether, is there really a community of homeless or can it not really be a community? And what struck me, I think, first off was there's a real community out there, especially among the street folks. They know each other. You know, they take care of each other. They fight with each other one day, the next day, their best friend. You know, it's a real community, just like a family. Um, and, um, and they stick by one another. So when we, you know, when one of our street folks dies and we have a memorial service for them, everybody comes. You know, we have a, we have a clinic, you know, for street folks, which started about 25 years ago at MGH because we realized they have a hard time coming to the hospital because they can't shower or they're in all sorts of So we have a really dedicated clinic now, two days a week at, at Mass General, which is, by the way, in the area where the street people live, we're at Boston Medical Centers, where we have a much bigger clinic is where the shelters are. So we realized it was a sort of important geographical distinction we had never understood. But we started that clinic, and at first we didn't think anyone would come. The hospital gives us coffee and donuts and stuff like that, and we have meal vouchers so they can go to the cafeteria and get a meal. We have um, lots of clothing, you know, stuff to, to make it a – we're trying to make everybody want to come, you know, and at first it was a little sleepy, but by, you know, I would say within a year or two, we were seeing 60, 80 homeless people on a Thursday morning, street people on a Thursday morning at MGH. And then it became a place where we could have students and we could get a lot of, it became a community thing. And then you would be surprised at how this gelled as a true community, you know, and we could say, for example, if, you know, the, like the day after Thanksgiving might be a Friday, we weren't going to be in clinic. You just have to tell one person and absolutely no one will show up. So, you know, there's a network out there <laughs> and a closeness that took my breath away. Um, and it's a little bit challenged now as people get into housing, you know, they usually the housing is placed in far away. So that community is kind of broken and they go into housing where they're all alone now and where it's a miracle that they're in housing, don't get me wrong you know, reestablishing a community like they had on the streets is a challenge. Um, but it only, to me, it emphasized how important that community was while they were living on the streets. I could give you lots of other stories, but I think your point is so well taken that recognizing the, the draw and the importance of a community among these homeless folks lets you let go a little bit of thinking that you know best for them. They will frequently tell you where they want to be and how they want to be handled. Yeah. And, and not to put too fine a point on it, but I, I can't imagine what it's like to be taken out of a community to live in an apartment where you're surrounded by people you don't know who will never really understand what it's like to live on the street or what it's like to have been addicted to heroin, you know, or whatever it is. Uh, how do you relate to those folks like what what do you what what's the conversation that you have um and it just it strikes me that there's a difficulty there that 
I think we as a society don't necessarily understand or fully grasp. I I couldn't agree with you more. And I've been, um, you know, because we've followed so many of our street folks who've been on the streets for 20 and 30 years who go into housing and then we still take care of them. um, I would, I would always stop by saying housing is absolutely critical, critically necessary. And we have to scale up housing like crazy. You can't do this without housing, but for some of the more chronically homeless people that we've been caring for and that we all see on the streets, once they get into housing, they still need a ton of support. And I worry a lot about, you know, just saying getting someone into housing is now the end of the game. Sometimes it's just the beginning of what you've got to do. And for many of the folks we care for, it's much more intense caring for them once they're in housing than it was when they were on the street. And I don't want that to be interpreted as we don't think housing is, or housing is absolutely critical, but it has to, I think for many people, the support and all of these programs, you know, housing first and all that, they're all about supportive housing. They're not just housing. And so, you know, we, it's magic. So we go use these, a team to visit people, be with our psychiatrist and our nurse, and me or one of the medical folk, other medical folks, you know, when you can see what's going on in their home, it's like my country doctor, my old family doctor coming in and you can see what's going on. And then you realize, you know, how, you know, their, their skills were all honed when they're on the streets. And when you take those street skills, put somebody into a one bedroom or studio apartment in the neighborhood, they don't know those skills become not, and they don't have, you know, they don't know how to turn on the TV. They've never used a clicker before. They haven't cooked before. They haven't done, you know, a lot of stuff and they miss their friends. And then, you know, if you bring your friends into the apartment, we realize all the time they you know, their friends are still outside, they bring them in and pretty soon they get kicked out. So there's a lot of support that really needs to be done then. Our, the consumers on our advisory board really were the ones that made us, um, we, we thought once people got housed, we could stop caring for them and move on to the next, but they said that would be abandoning them. They pointed out, they've done videos on how lonely it is and what you can do, you know, they're to, They've done this so they can share with other homeless people going into house the challenges you're going to have. And the biggest one is the loneliness and the lack of community. And then for people who've never really had much in their lives, trying to establish something, the hobbies, you know, the, the things you do with your day so that you don't spend it drinking or doing drugs or something else are really, really important. And I think those are doable. There are programs around that can show you can do that, but they're expensive. And we think we owe it to people to recognize it. It's expensive. Hmm. Last question. I really love this line from Stories from the Shadows where you wrote, work was difficult and wonderful and the joy and sustenance we drew from each other was a revelation to me. Maybe to end things, you can kind of describe a little bit about that feeling. Oh yeah. And I kind of, it's like, it's a little embarrassing now when you say it that way, but I think I went to the sh- I went, certainly went to the shelter knowing nothing about homelessness and doing this because I couldn't say no to my chief of medicine and I thought it'd be a year of giving back. But I wasn't cherishing as I was looking forward to getting onto my fellowship, which is what I really wanted to do. And I was not ready to be thrown into this bunch of, to be among this bunch of nurses who are revolutionary and <laughs> um, how they approached everything. I wasn't ready for the complexity of the medicine. I wasn't ready for TB, you know, 60 people with active TB that we needed to get four medications every day for 18 months in, and they were all over town. (laughs) And then AIDS coming along. So I remember getting drawn in initially by how complicated it was, not to mention that everybody was also struggling with a thought disorder and maybe a substance use disorder. It was very complicated. And so I remember at the end of a year asking for a second year. And by the 
end of that second year, I realized I was kind of hooked because this was so complicated, but I was at the same time working with these nurse practitioners and a PA and other doctors who were all involved in caring for the same people, all putting in, you know, devoting their lives to taking care of people who who had never had anything like this. And you just got taken away. And then as I got to know the folks, you know, I would say that the joy was, you know, boy, the revelation and learning that this person I thought was just asleep, you know, on a street corner, you know, drunk all day long, turns out to be this amazing human being who's got so many skills and so many, you know, wonderful attributes. And then they're sharing with us and letting us be part of their lives. So I think we get caught by that. And then I started to go back. That's why I became a doctor. <laughs> so I was lucky. I was actually doing what I wanted to do when I started medical school, only by accident, not by choice. <laughs> Amazing. Dr. O'Connell, thanks so much. Is there a place where people can, certain services that people can donate to that you feel would be worthwhile? Oh, well, yeah, I mean, thank you for asking that. I'm always, you know, nervous saying that, but we have, you know, our Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program, which is, you know, at a website, which is um, bhchp.org. There's all sorts of things. So if you want to volunteer, or come take a tour or give some money, we love it. We, you know, we're we're pretty lucky to be Medicaid funded, but the extra stuff I'm telling you in these stories usually comes from the philanthropy and the grants that keep us going in addition to the Medicaid. So we would, we're always grateful for anything we get. Also grateful for being on this show. Thank you for letting us have a chance to uh, talk with you. Absolutely. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much. This podcast has been produced by the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Visit eppc.org to learn more about our programs, events, and podcasts.